Good day. You're tuned into Free City Radio. This is Stefan Christoph. Thank you for joining us. It is the 51st edition of the show, and um, I'm happy to be with you. Um, today on the broadcast, um, we're going to be looking at a bit of a different topic. It is Tuesday, the 20th of July. Um, last week, I was reading about um, the cosmos, and I was reading about Saturn specifically. Uh, Saturn's moon Enceladus. I was really uh, taken by the research that has been happening uh, regarding uh, the plumes on the moon, how they feed the fourth ring of Saturn, uh, the possibilities for life um, within what seems to be a subsurface ocean on Enceladus. Um, now, space gazing or searching in the cosmos, I can understand. Um, in many ways could seem uh, less urgent than a lot of the um, struggles that I address on this podcast in our societies uh, globally. I, I tried to address and, and highlight these voices. Um, but I do think that uh, one of the essential points of a lot of these struggles is a recognition of the sanctity of life, um, the wonder of life, the um, uh, struggle to recognize um, that uh, colonial capitalism is a violent force on this earth. And sometimes um, when thinking about or feeling overwhelmed about the sort of magnitude and the force of these colonial systems of violence uh, that have been building up for hundreds of years, um, displacing communities, um, targeting uh, indigenous lands, um, really commodifying our relationship uh, to the earth, uh, humanity's relationship to the earth. I think sometimes uh, looking at the, the cosmos can help us remember the sanctity of life and some of the essential points that uh, drive um, social movements um, about recalibrating our relationship to the earth, about lis listening to indigenous voices, um, about um, challenging overtly capitalism to not let our movements be commodified. I find I think about these uh, ideas when I uh, look to the cosmos and think about the, um, the nature of uh, not just the solar system but beyond and, and how uh, precious uh, life is. Um, so I recorded an interview in this context and, and just general interest, of course, uh, with a molecular biologist, Antonin Affholder, uh, who is in France and has been involved in a landmark study which analyzes and compares um, the chemicals that are found within the plumes of Enceladus. Um, people might remember when there was a mission uh, to Saturn, not a huge fan of NASA, um, but there was photos of the um, plumes of Enceladus um, that, as I mentioned, feed the fourth ring of Saturn. Um, those plumes seem to be coming from an under-surface uh, ocean. Um, so there's been a lot of uh, biologists looking at this question, particularly those who have specializations in examining the types of life that are in the deep ocean close to the hydrothermal vents um, in the very, very depths of the ocean. Um, some people have 
uh, considered or thought that these are the places where life originated on Earth. Um, so I'll share the conversation with Antonin, um, who uh, was involved uh, in a recent study uh, and published actually a text about it um, within Nature Journal um, with some other uh, molecular biologists. This is Free City Radio. I'm Stefan Christoph. It is the 20th of July. And um, here's my conversation with molecular biologist Antonin Affholder. To start, uh, I, I basically, um, if you could uh, share a bit of introduction about uh, your work. Um, Antonin uh, is joining us from Montpellier, uh, who has been involved in a recent study uh, regarding the plumes of Enceladus. Um, of course, uh, the world was taken uh, with interest um, when the Cassini mission flew through the plumes of Enceladus just a few years ago um, because of the compounds that were discovered in these flyby um, moments. Um, that was, of course, the mission to Saturn, but there was a, a moment when there was a, a decision to pass as close as possible um, in cosmic terms uh, to the moon's plumes, which actually feed the outer ring of Saturn. So I'm really happy to get a chance to, to talk with you about your research, uh, Antonin. Um, maybe if you could just start by uh, introducing yourself and um, just sharing a few key points from this recent publication that you feel are interesting and important to share with the world. Okay. Well, thank you for inviting me. And, uh, so I myself, I'm not an expert on the system of Saturn. I'm actually a biologist before everything else. Yes. And, uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm working, well, I was working on Enceladus because of its astrobiological interest. And because we thought that we as biologists uh, had something to, to share or to offer to the astrobiology community about this uh, particular moon. Um, and in this case, um, so maybe we, we need just a little bit more context, but the, the astrobiological interest for Enceladus is grounded in the idea that there may be uh, hydrothermal vents uh, there under, at the bottom of the global ocean that may be under the ice. And these hydrothermal vents, they may resemble those that we have uh, in Earth's oceans. Uh, and on Earth, these uh, hydrothermal vents, they are inhabited by very complex and weird communities of microbes. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why there was all this interest for uh, Enceladus as a potential candidate for extraterrestrial life. Mm -hmm. uh, but beyond the idea that there was hydrothermal vents that may be habitable, everything was uh, a little bit of speculation. Mm -hmm. Uh, key volatiles associated with this kind of hydrothermal chemistry and with the uh, organisms that we find in these hydrothermal vents were found in the plume of Enceladus. But we had no quantitative idea uh, of whether the quantities that were found were realistically uh, high enough to sustain um, a particular population of organisms or even if the presence of the dehydrogen, for example, was not a sign of the absence of hydrogen consuming organisms, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we felt that we had uh, 
the opportunity to to make something quantitative about all that. Yes. Uh, compute the quantity of the hydrogen that could be consumed by such organisms, um, and uh, and also the quantity of methane, for example, that could be uh, produced by by these kind of organisms. Mm -hmm. So we did that. We modeled. We simulated um, the Earth-like an Earth-like organism that uh, on Earth lives in atomic events, and we modeled it in a putative uh, Enceladus hydrogen event. In doing so, we were able to simulate uh, the uh, composition or key mm. observables in the plume. And we could compare them with the simulations, we could compare them to uh, what was actually observed by the Cassini uh, probe. Mm -hmm. and, um, and yeah, in that we found that, yes, the dehydrogen levels in the plume could be associated with uh, environments that are favorable to these Earth-like uh, microorganisms. But we also found that the current scenario to explain the presence of methane in the plume mm -hmm. was uh, insufficient. Okay. Uh, that we think that there must be a yet unknown source of methane to explain uh, what was observed by the Cassini okay. probe. Mm -hmm. And we also showed that a population of methane gens could be a good candidate for that. Okay. And this is, of course, not saying that there are microorganisms, well, methanogens, methanogenic microorganisms there, but mm -hmm. at least yeah. we cannot, uh, we cannot uh, rule, it uh, rule it out. Rule it out. Thank you so much for sharing all that context. I think for people who are listening about the possibility of hydrothermal vents, um, maybe they, they um, haven't sort of heard a general theory of the idea of the subsurface ocean of Enceladus. Um, could you just share a bit about that, just for context of what you were sharing, what you were mentioning? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, to go back a little bit uh, in the history that uh, of the discoveries about Enceladus, mm -hmm. uh, when the Voyager um, probe took pictures uh, in the eighties, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, the community observed that the surface of Enceladus was quite young in the sense that there was uh, areas that were uh, clean of craters. Yes. And smooth, that means smooth surface. Smooth surface, exactly. Mm -hmm. And that means usually that uh, the surface is renewed, that some kind of process is renewing the mm -hmm. surface. Yeah. And this was a really weird thing to observe for a body like Enceladus because it is uh, extremely small, 500 kilometers in diameter, mm -hmm. extremely small, and uh, it was perfectly white also. Well, mm -hmm. blueish white. Sure. And it was frozen. So seeing that there was surface activity was uh, of great interest for the community. Yes, of course. That was also what warranted the new mission that was a casting mission. Mm -hmm. And also another feature that was observed by the, uh, by the uh, Voyager probe mm -hmm. was that the E-ring of Saturn, the most outer ring of, yep. of Saturn, was kind of the same color of Enceladus, yeah. and also was denser around Enceladus. Yeah. So also that was uh, a clue that there might be some kind of activity on Enceladus that was releasing matter into the into mm -hmm. the E-ring. Yeah. And when the Cassini mission visited the system. Uh, it was observed that the composition, the shape, the mass of the grains that compose the earring mm -hmm. were completely consistent, were uh, 
uh, with the another interesting feature that was discovered like mm -hmm. the, uh, this plume that escapes mm -hmm. from Enceladus's mm -hmm. surface. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, the, comp the composition of this plume was consistent with the composition of the uh, of the outer ring. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, scientists that uh, looked at the Voyager data had uh, had a really good uh, insights mm -hmm. about uh, potential activity on uh, on Enceladus because there was in fact this outgassing activity that is uh, spectacular and also really interesting because this is really the the most uh, compelling clue that there is something liquid be beneath the ice. Yes, yes. Uh, to to mm. support the idea that there is something outgassing. Yes. Uh, there must be something liquid beneath the ice. But then also uh, looking at the um, at the way it's uh, mm -hmm. just uh, kind of wobbles. Uh, sure. It's or orbital path. Yeah, it's orbital, but really in a precise way. The way it wobbles around its uh, orbital path mm -hmm. uh, is also indicative of uh, a decoupling between the core and the outer shell. Yeah, they are not uh, bonded together mm -hmm. with the solid matter. Mm -hmm. So that was an, uh, an, uh, a clue of the existence of a global ocean. Yeah, and that's a really important point. Also, just to I think because of the distance from the sun, people might um, be surprised of the idea that there could be liquid water or different um, non-frozen substances below the ocean, but just sort of the, you mentioned the, uh, the pattern uh, of not just the orbit, but the sort of uh, way that Enceladus moves. Um, well, the uh, yeah, can, can you talk a bit about because I remember when we saw those plumes uh, with Cassini, well, the world, uh, we, we uh, were surprised. And um, yeah, so if you could share a bit about the idea that there could be an ocean based on gravitational force as opposed to solar energy. Yeah, that's a good question because it was really a surprise to find uh, liquid water so far away from the sun. Yeah. Because the energy that is received at the surface of Enceladus is very, very low. Yes. Compared to what we have on Earth. Of course. So in order to maintain liquid water, we have to think about a source of energy that is mm -hmm. of thermal energy that is internal. And uh, for example, that could be, uh, you know, nuclear reaction within the core. Mm -hmm. On Earth, a little bit of thermal energy is produced uh, that way. But Enceladus is really, really small. So that's also yeah, uh, kind of a hypothesis because of that. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that the gravitational gravitational pull of Saturn mm -hmm. that uh, uh, provokes uh, some kind of tides in the core, like on Earth, the Sun and the Moon, they they uh, they are the origin of the tides that we have uh, in the sea. But they also make tides, uh, Earth tides of the continents and uh, solid matter. Uh, Saturn is much 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 bigger uh, than the Moon and much closer uh, than we are, much closer to Enceladus than we are to the sun. So wow. the gravitational pull, the tidal forces exerted by, by uh, Saturn on Enceladus are, are immense. Yes, of course. Uh, and that that's, uh, provokes some kind of uh, yeah, tides in the core that is uh, deformed. Yeah. And that generates friction between the, the particles that make uh, the, the core. Yeah. And this friction uh, turns into heat, 
And that's how uh, we have sufficient heats on Enceladus to maintain the equation. And that was actually the, the computational proof, the numerical proof of that was quite recent. It was published in uh, 2017. Mm -hmm. uh, it was, yeah, really interesting work from uh, Choblet and his colleagues. Mm -hmm. and, and just as a reminder, the um, gravitational forces leading to a lot of the outer rings of Saturn, I think just for people to think visually about the fact that this moon is feeding the ring of this massive planet. It's just incredible. Um, yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't catch exactly what you were saying. Oh, that the outer ring of Saturn, the E-ring, yeah. I believe, is actually fed by this uh, geological process of Enceladus, um, which is just incredible to think about. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> Never said that. <laughs> so um, thank you so much for taking the time to share this, these reflections. Can you just finally um, talk a bit about what excites you to do this research about Enceladus? Why, um, as a biologist, um, why, I mean, you talked about the thermal vents. Obviously, they are one of the major candidates in terms of popular reflection and also scientific research in terms of our understanding of the origins of life on earth. Um, and there's been extensive research done um, to sort of try to understand the biological processes around thermal vents. So yeah, if you could just talk about why Enceladus interests you and uh, why this research is exciting for, for you right now. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think what, what really interested me uh, for this uh, work on Enceladus was, it was the perfect candidate for us to develop kind of a new approach to habitability. Um, before that, I mean, even, even right now, habitability is sometimes, um, well, oftentimes, uh, linked to uh, only liquid water, the presence of liquid water. When we tell, we say uh, an exoplanet is a habitable exoplanet, it's only in the way that it might sustain liquid water on its mm -hmm. surface. Yeah. But now when we see Enceladus, the, the day we discovered the ocean, it was for sure a very interesting day. Mm -hmm. But was it the day that we, that we told ourselves that Enceladus was in fact habitable? Mm -hmm. It was not so it means that we, we need to go further than uh, only looking for liquid water. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, in that way, I think that we as biologists can meet the, the astrophysicists and planetary science people uh, by building this theory of habitability grounded in, in the way we, we understand life on Earth. That's also an important point because if we want to make reasonable assumptions about uh, other bodies in the solar system, but also mm -hmm. outside of it, uh, we, we cannot just uh, assume that life is whatever we want it to be, uh, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. uh, something that we cannot explain uh, from our uh, physical or chemical models. And we say that that's a weird thing that happens there might be life because we just don't understand. <laughs> this, is, this is not the scientific method. Yes, of course. So, I think we are, we have to uh, make assumptions relative to what we know on Earth. Even though life might be something else elsewhere, we have to, to start out with the life on Earth. Yes, well, all, there's a scientific reference and process to understand the, yeah. the biology and the, the chemical 
reactions involved. Yeah, and also the, the maybe a second point about what was really interesting about Cincinnati for me mm -hmm. is that it was really the occasion also to put together all the information that we have, you know, vague understanding of the power in the uh, hydrothermal vents, mm -hmm. the way the hydrothermal vents connect to the plume, mm -hmm. and some knowledge that we have about organisms that in inhabit hydrothermal vents on Earth. Mm -hmm. We put all that together, and we can see how the information flows, what assumptions lead to what uh, conclusion, and we can try to think about uh, uh, what hypothesis is reasonable, uh, in which direction should we, uh, should we look to, um, to improve our understanding of the system. And yeah, I think it was a perfect example for that. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak today, Antonin. Thank you, Stefan. Thank you. That was a conversation with molecular biologist Antonin Affholder in France, uh, who's been involved in a landmark study looking at the plumes of Enceladus, which is one of Saturn's moons. Uh, people might uh, remember um, the photos of uh, Enceladus's sort of water, or not only water, but volcano-type plumes that are feeding the fourth ring of Saturn, uh, little bits that then orbit the, the huge gas giant planet. I wanted to highlight um, this interview this week. I've been thinking about the importance of um, our place uh, in the solar system as humanity in the cosmos and sort of the ways that our work can be grounded in that essential uh, recognition of the sanctity of life. I deeply feel that the colonial capitalist frameworks violate the sanctity of life and feel urgently the importance of um, supporting movements, indigenous movements, social movements around the world that challenge that the framework of economics that is driving uh, climate disaster um, and impeding on the sovereignty of, of people indigenous people uh, around the world. Um, sometimes looking to the skies and the stars can help, I think, remind us of the importance of those messages. Um, we're hearing, of course, right now uh, from voices like those of Kanahus Manuel of Tiny House Warriors and many others who are on the front lines um, who have been featured here on this program on Free City Radio. So thanks for listening. This has been the 51st edition of the show. It is Tuesday, the 20th of July. I'm Stefan Christoph. And if you want to reach me, I'm at uh, on Twitter at Spirodon, S-P-I-R-O-D-O-N. If you like this podcast, please encourage a friend to subscribe. Uh, you can share. We're on Apple Podcasts and beyond. Uh, it's Free City Radio. And uh, thanks for being with us. Um, I'm going to go out with a piece of music by an artist I love uh, named Secret Pyramid. They're based in Vancouver. And uh, I'll see you next Tuesday. Uh, have a good day. <laughs>